Well, if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, page 785 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. What we're going to do is I'm going to read verse 18 and then skip down to 22 and then finish out reading the chapter. So once again, welcome. And just by way of reminder, or maybe for the first time, if you have a question about what was said or sung or about Jesus Christ this morning, when we are through here, I'd be happy to try to answer those questions for you. I typically just stay up here a bit and just wait for you to come. So um, it would be a delight to try to answer those questions if you have any. Okay. Verse 18, Acts chapter 17. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Aragopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men and women life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Verse 34. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow together and just pray briefly to seek the help that we need. Our God and Father, we would simply ask this morning that you would take my words and speak through them. Take all my inadequacies and work in spite of them. And take our minds, help us to think through with them and take our lives for your glory and our eternal good. And please reign in them. And for Jesus' sake, we would ask these things this, this Easter morning, which we thank you so much for. Amen. Jesus of Nazareth is, is physically alive. 
That is the essence of what the man in Acts 17 was preaching. Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, nothing will ever be the same again. Now, to help us work through these verses, we have just some points. And I'm just going to get right to the first point. There's four. First point is his message. And you can see this at the end of verse 18. We purposely read it that Luke, the writer, tells us that Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So what Paul was saying to the people, in essence, was this. Jesus of Nazareth is alive. And right now, Jesus of Nazareth is living a glorious, embodied life far beyond anything that we could ever imagine. Therefore, this Jesus, although he was truly and verifiably dead, as the public record showed, had passed through death, death, and having passed through death into resurrection, is alive forever. And because of him, and this is by his own words, Only because of him, immortality with God past our death is now a possibility. Before it wasn't, now it is. It's a possibility that can be a certainty, but only through repentance to God, through faith in Jesus, who took our place, accepted God's wrath physically and psychologically and physiologically. That pain on the cross as he hung and died there as payment. For our sin. Sin. That's the word. Sin is what this whole Jesus stuff is really about. Sin. Never really comfortable to speak about. In part because I'm a sinner. In part because many struggle to or resist to think of themselves in this way. However, let me say this. Because sin is a part of the gospel story. What makes sin, sin, is not first that it hurts people. It does hurt people. We know that. But what makes sin, sin first, is that it mocks God. In other words, when we sin at any level, lies, lust, slander, hate, greed, gossip, jealousy, uh, self-promotion, laziness, soft sin, hard sin, internal sin, external sin. When we sin, we reject, we dispute We ignore God's rightful rule in our life. So that in sin, the glory of God is not honored. The holiness of God is not revered. The truth of God is not sought. The the faithfulness of God is not trusted. The promises of God are not believed. The commandments of God are not obeyed. The wrath of God isn't feared. The grace of God is not cherished. And the person of God is not worshipped and prized publicly, privately, far above everyone and everything as he should be. And these sins are committed by everyone, everyone in the world on some level every day. And that's the outrage of sin. That's the awfulness of sin. That is sin. Which is why people can become emotionally outraged by poverty and prejudice and terrorism and injustice. And well, they should yet really feel very little or no remorse or outrage that God is so violated and belittled, not in their sin, but in all our sin. Luther would say God's righteousness is so terribly underplayed in our age. And I would add to that, God's holiness is so terribly awesome that we read in the Bible, angels in heaven have to cover up their face as God being constantly worshipped in heaven for his greatness and for his glory and for his purity. 
And so that's what sin is. And every generation certainly has its own little clever ways to defy God in this. I'll just give you one. No one will really get hurt when I do this. But sin is esteeming and valuing and honoring humanity and creation above God. And because of sin, the man that was sent by God in Acts 17 is saying, would to God that you repent of this. Because God has sent an exact day when he will judge the whole world with justice. He's going to set everything right by the man he's appointed, Jesus, who I've been telling you is alive because God raised him from the dead. And that was what the man sent by God, the Apostle Paul, as you know, was preaching to these people. God has commanded, he hasn't suggested, he's commanded a day where all people should repent to change their minds, change their lives, turn from sin to him for grace and for mercy and for any hope of eternal life with him. And remember, Luke, who is recording this for us in the book of Acts, Luke, who, by the way, was a doctor, tells us in verse 18 that Paul was preaching. You can see it there if your Bible's open. A, a better translation, he was evangelizing um, that's closer to the Greek. Paul was evangelizing for a decision, the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So again, Paul was saying Jesus lived and he taught on this earth and he had a band of followers. He was a good man. There was no one like him, yet he was a suffering Messiah. He was prophesied 800 years beforehand as the one who would be crushed for our iniquities. A punishment that brought us peace would it be upon him. So Jesus was tried in a Jewish and Roman uh, kangaroo court. They found him guilty, even though he was innocent. They had him beat to a bloody pulp, shoved a crown of thorns on his head just for kicks. They strung him up on a cross, put a spear through his side, took him off the cross. When he died, he was buried, and three days later, he's walking around again. Christ is risen. That's Paul's message. He's risen, which means everything he taught and everything he promised and everything he declared has to be reckoned with. You can't say what Jesus said and expect people to ignore it. It has to be reckoned with. That's our first point, verse 18, the message. Gospel, Christ, crucified, risen, ascended, returning to judge. Second point, then, his straightforward approach. And I hope you can appreciate this, and I really want you to understand this, especially because of our times and the confusing nature of what actually a Christian preaching is or isn't. So I want you to know, notice that Paul in his preaching, when he comes to this very sophisticated city of Athens, he wasn't playing mind games with them, right? This wasn't theater to Paul. He wasn't trying to give them a good show by his, quote, speech. And he wasn't trying to build a support group. And he wasn't trying to connect Jesus with a political idea or a political message or group. Too many in our day do that. We want to drag Jesus into our group. Oh yeah, Jesus is just like our group. Come and join our political group. Nor was Paul in his preaching trying to prove that Christianity was true by, quote, the difference that it had made in his life. And we need to see this. So he doesn't go around in Athens and start with the inward experience of the gospel. Now, there's no question that the gospel had changed Paul's life. He would never have been preaching the gospel if the gospel didn't change his life. But what I want you to see is he doesn't try to establish the truth of Christianity by appealing to his own inward experience. He's not saying, this is what Jesus means to me or what he's done for me. Nor, verse 31 there, nor does he explain how the resurrection happens. He just says, verse 31, God did it. That's it. God did it. 
nor does Paul try to answer all their questions. And I can promise you a group like that would have tons of questions. Because the group that he was preaching to, verse 21, Athenians and foreigners as well, they were the kind of people who spent all their time, all day long, talking and listening to the latest ideas. In other words, this group was fascinated by theories and philosophies and concepts. And apparently, they could spend all day doing this. And so this would probably be the kind of thing you could find on a college campus, a local coffee house, uh, some kind of a social media outlet or something like that. But the point here is that this is very much like our time. People whose heart and mind are filled with all the questions and all kinds of ideas and theories and concepts, for example, and opinions, for example, about God, about a God, or no God, or a few gods, or creating their own God in their minds, fitting the way of life they would like to live. And I want you to think with me. In the last 20 years or so, books have been written, good books, books which I've read and have been tremendously helped by, but nevertheless, books have been written like, can man live without God? The reason for God. What good is God? But surely they were written in part as a reaction to the thoughts of a growing number of people. And you might be one of them who say, look, either God is dead or he's not as relevant as he used to be. Or we don't need him as much as we used to. So we need him for weddings and funerals and Christmas and Easter. And we need him for the kids and we need him for jobs and, of course, our finances. But to save us and to rule over us? No, thank you. We're going to treat God like grandpa. We're going to put him in a corner. When we're ready to get him, we'll get him. People will ask questions. But I promise you, most of the questions are not questions that are the sum and substance of the gospel, of the resurrection, of the crucifixion. In other words, when people have questions about life and and religion, the questions are mostly this. How can it be, if God is all-powerful, that there's so much wrong in the world? What about the problem of sin or evil? Why are there so many tornadoes and earthquakes and hurricanes? Why do innocent children suffer, die, and starve? Uh, What about all the hypocrites in the church? Or why does God seem like a butcher in the Old Testament? And we could try to answer those questions. And yes, those questions need to be answered. But those aren't the basic questions in which the truth, the validity of Christianity of the resurrection depends on. And the man sent by Jesus Christ, Paul in that kind of context, takes the opportunity and he doesn't respond to all their ideas floating around in the air, but confronts people in such a way that it's just purely straightforward. Here is Jesus, and Jesus is risen. In other words, the basic gospel. And he does that for a reason. Because when you're hearing all this stuff, and you're not right with Jesus, any sensible person would want to investigate the message of Paul And they'd be forced to ask at least these questions, okay? Who was this Jesus? Was his message really true? Did he really rise from the dead? And is there really a judgment coming? Right? Okay? Paul, you're telling me that the one God, verse 30, has commanded every person, man, woman, young person, to repent, verse 31, to him because he's appointed an exact day when he's going to judge the whole world with justice by the man he appointed Jesus. And the proof of all this is that Jesus is alive. He's alive because God raised him from the dead. Is that what you're saying, Paul? Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. So for God's sake, repent and believe and live in that truth. Because the time will come 
when it'll be too late. So if I may, with great respect to you, if you're here and you're like an agnostic, you're an atheist, or you're just wondering or, or, or wavering or considering or just someone made you come, and you're thinking, is all this Jesus talk really, really true? Then I want you to set aside all those other questions that we discussed earlier. Just for a minute, and I want you to commit yourself to an honest investigation of the biblical record regarding this. Who was Jesus? Was his message true? Is he really alive? And is a judgment really coming? And loved ones for two millennia, honest people have asked those questions. Just let me give you a few names. You might know them, you might not know them. A William Ramsey, atheist, archaeologist, renowned archaeologist. He sets out to investigate this whole Christianity thing because he knows it isn't true. In his investigation, he becomes a Christian. Vigo Olson, brilliant surgeon, atheist. He was challenged by his wife parents to examine the claims of Jesus Christ for yourself. He was converted. Listen to what he said. My previous understanding was shallow. That made me sit up, take notice, and repent. Andre Cole, he's a magician. Christian now. Christian magician. Frank Morrison, English journalist. Sir William Ramsey, lawyer. All set out. This Jesus stuff is a bunch of bunk. And in their honest investigation, Jesus became alive. But of course, he already was. And that's Paul's straightforward approach. He's not arguing from personal experience because what if their experience is better than, than, than ours? He's not going political. Jesus said the kingdom is not of this earth. He's not answering all their how-come questions. He's not treating preaching as entertaining people. He's just explaining and declaring and proving the gospel is true. If your Bible's open, verse 2 of chapter 17, he went into the synagogues and reasoned with them from the scriptures. Verse 3, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogues and with God-fearing Greeks and those who happened to be in the marketplace. And this is so, so important, again, especially in our age, an age which tries to give a picture of Christianity that is a brainless or thoughtless or superstitious or only a certain kind of cookie-cutter cultural experience. So stick your brain in your pocket, wear your heart on your sleeve, stop going to the movies, no more secular music, become really conservative, and then, and only then, you can become a Christian. Loved ones, Nothing could be further from the truth. Just let me give you one example under the heading of superstitious. Quite a few years ago now, my wife and I were selling our home in Tennessee. And so we invited the superstitious, religious, real estate lady, who was a lovely lady, to come to our house and do the first checkover thing. The sun was bright that day. It began to hit through the window. The window was a certain kind of window that when the sun hit, put a shadow of the cross on our floor. So she comes into our house with her beautiful southern accent, which I'm going to try to replicate. Not to make fun of her, but just you got to be there. <laughs> so she walks into the house and she sees the cross on the carpet and she says, Hold on. <laughs> she, she says, oh my gosh, y'all. 
there's a cross on the floor in your carpet. And I'm like, where's the cross? I thought we cleaned up the whole place. What's going on? And then she goes, God must want you to sell this house. And I'm like, I hope he does. I mean, that's why you're here. See, here's the thing. The text of Scripture, the claims of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit is happily and willingly to stand up against every honest investigation, all of our intellectual acumen, and take it on, take it on, not just to prove you wrong, but to lead you to Christ so that you might believe and honestly live finally in the truth that God really, really does love you. He loves you because he sent Christ to die on the cross for sins. And Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed, which means everything he says has to be reckoned with. And I like that kind of straightforwardness. And I hope you do as well. There's no monkeying around. People's eternal destiny is at stake here. And I'm going to suggest to you that that kind of approach is very much needed in our day. That takes us to our third point. Number one, his message, Jesus is alive. He's coming back to judge. Please repent. Number two, his approach, just straightforward. Here is the gospel. Number three, two groups. Now, we can't spend too much time, but we need to see that Paul's straightforward approach and that one message, the gospel message in it, he encounters two different interpretations of life. Verse 18a, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who begin to dispute them. So these people are going around saying, hey, listen, Paul, wait a minute. How, how can you say all this Jesus is alive and repent and sin stuff? Come, come now. You know, who do you think uh, we are? We're not low brain people. We are high brain people. Okay, so the first group were the Epicureans. And this group said, and I want you to listen carefully because it's so much like our day. They said, since life is so fleeting, and since nothing happens after you die, and since life is all chance base, your greatest personal happiness in the current moment is the greatest good. That's them. Your great, greatest personal happiness in the current moment is the greatest good. God's irrelevant. Afterlife, a big joke. Death, then, is the end of it. And since that is the case, what does the song say, Liza Manella? A life is a cabaret, old friend or old chum. Life is a cabaret, right? Or, or who sings, uh, don't say it out loud, but everybody's working for the weekend. I don't know. Maybe Journey, I don't know. Rihanna. Most of you probably know her. Uh, I've got 45 seconds from Wilden. Whatever Wilden is, it doesn't sound good. But the only reason why I know that song is because of Paul McCartney. The greatest pleasure is what's pursued. So, so listen very carefully. This is what their framework was. This is what they believe. The best life is an undisturbed life among friends devoted to the satisfaction of our own personal happiness. No God, no judgment, no responsibility. Life's a party, and it's all chance anyway. So the Epicurean could look at the condition of the world and say basically whatever whatever, and, and whatever, as long as it doesn't reach my doorsteps. And if it does, I'll move. Because, carpe diem, seize the day. You only live once. Get all you can now. When you're finished, you're done. Fun, 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 till your daddy takes the T-bird away. Because your happiness is all that matters. Because after life, you die, and then there's nothing. And Paul speaks within that framework and says, no, no, no. And again, you don't have to be too bright to realize that that kind of Epicurean mindset has invaded our world. Get it, have it, enjoy it all now, 
Forget about everything else. Because when you're dead, you're dead. That's it. There's a popular writer. He's no friend of Christianity, but his name is Ian McEwen. And he tells the story of his wife and children and two nephews. They're riding in the car to the grandmother's funeral. And this is what he writes. Jenny sat in the back, our baby next to her. At her side, the children discussed the grandmother's death. We sat listening helplessly, unable to steer the conversation away. Alexander, our four-year-old, was aghast that we were planning to put his granny, of whom he was very fond of, in a wooden box and lower her into a hole in the ground and cover her with earth. She doesn't like that, he said confidently. Harry, the seven-year-old, had the facts. She's dead, stupid, stone cold dead. She doesn't know anything about it. When's she coming back? Never. You don't come back when you're dead. But when is she? Never, ever, ever, stupid. Now, do you find that attractive on any level? Is that the kind of philosophy that allows you to go to sleep at night and go, man, this is a terrific life? No, that's the kind of philosophy that causes many of the brightest people we will know, despite all their intellect, to take their life. Because apparently, they're born into the world without without reason, life is a chance, and then they die, and it's over, and because of this, there's really nothing to fear, and there's certainly nothing really to hope for, so get it all now. Eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow it's all over. Now, do you know how many people have checked out of life under that line of living? I mean, it's its ultimate conclusion. What's the use? What's the use? So you would understand then why Paul, the Christian, would have a huge dispute with these guys. Because there's a huge one. There is all the difference in the world between that line of thinking and the Christian view. And this is what you need to know. Whatever view you would surrender to in your life will alter your life. It will alter your view of death, of punishment, of judgment, of sex, of marriage, and money, and worship. It alters everything. Everything. Okay, that's the first group that Paul has in his dispute with. The second group, we won't spend much time on at all. I have to be very brief. These are called the Stoics. And that was a group of people led by a man named Zeno. And what he said was this. The world wasn't a world of chance, but rather a world led by a blind in personal force. Uh, So we would know this as nature or mother nature. And all that is is pantheism. And what that means simply is this. God doesn't stand out of or above creation. He's actually absorbed in creation. And God is actually controlling very little in creation, if anything at all. And so life is a roller coaster. You know, buy your ticket, get on, whatever happens, deal with it. Accept your fate. Be self-sufficient. Uh, the Chevy truck commercial from, I think, the 1990s. I looked it up on YouTube, and it said, you know, America is still the land of the rugged individualists, and the truck is going up the big mountain, right? And then Bob Seger in the background, like a rock. I was strong as I could be, like a rock, and nothing ever got to me. And the Stoic would say, yeah, that's the way I like it. That's me. Deal with it. Deal with it. So there you have it. Two computing views of life. One view is life is a crapshoot. You're at the mercy of chance. You better eat and drink and be merry because it could all end tomorrow. 
The other view of life is led by, uh, life is led by a pitiless force called fate. So whatever happens, chin up, deal with it, and that's it. And into that context, which is a lot like ours, the Apostle Paul says, I, I've got another view for you. I've got a rival view for you. I'm going to preach to you about Jesus and the good news of the resurrection. And if you look at your Bible, verse 22, a sermon is basically this. This is what he says. I can tell, you that, I can tell that you're very religious people. You covered all your bases. You even have an idol, uh, a statue dedicated to an unknown God. Very clever of you that you've covered all your bases just in case you missed the deity. So let me start there. This God who you don't know, I know. And this God made everyone. That's why you're here. And he made everything. And that's why it's here. And he put you where you are at. He put you where you're at. That's why you're there. And this God doesn't need anything from you or I. And he's very much opposed to your adultery. And he's going to exercise judgment on everyone who chooses to love the creation rather than the creator. Who chooses to worship themselves, call their own shots, rather than him. But he's also a merciful God. That's why he sent Jesus on a rescue mission. So those of us who have turned our back on God can now in his mercy turn the right way around, face him in Christ, a brand new start and a pure, clean life, an eternal life with him. And he said an exact day when he's going to set everything right, and he's confirmed this by the ultimate proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he commands. He doesn't suggest. He commands everyone repent to have a change of heart and life and direction towards Jesus. And that was his sermon. No blind fate, no impersonal force, no chance life, no political intrigue, nothing. Just one God who orders the world, sent his son to save it, and will bring his son back to judge it. That takes us then to our final point. Number one, message, Jesus is alive. Approach, two, straightforward. Two groups competing, or competing views of life. And then finally, three responses. That's verse 32. Do you see that there? When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. So you have one group who essentially said, yeah, you have got to be kidding me. You want me to believe all this nonsense. We will not do it. There is no resurrection. All this stuff is just bunk. And that could be some of you here. You don't believe that Jesus is alive. You don't believe his followers were telling the truth. And you don't believe the scriptures at all. But let me ask you this. Have you ever read the Bible like you would read any other book of history and then take the standards that you would apply to that book and apply it to the Bible? Is it rational? Is it verifiable? Is it understandable? Are there credible evidences? Are there credible, credible witnesses? Uh, these disciples, these people, are they telling the truth or do you believe that they lived and died for a lie? And so the skeptic says, well, what about the Muslim martyrs? good question. I'm going to answer that one. The Muslim martyr dies to get an enhanced or guaranteed place in heaven. The Christian disciple would die preaching Christ is the only way to heaven. In other words, Muslim martyrs die for themselves. Christian martyrs die because people want them dead because they're saying Jesus is alive. There is a huge, huge difference. 
So if you're here and you don't believe that Jesus is alive, may God help you believe. Second group. The second group wants another go at it. I like this group. They listen to the gospel preached. They've been considering the alternatives. You know what? We need to think this through. A life led by blind and personal forces. That doesn't sound that much appealing anymore. Free falling in a chance universe. I don't really like that. To waste my life on pleasure. That doesn't sound appealing anymore. To know that God was purposeful in creating me. Purposeful in setting me in the exact place where I'm at. I want to know more about that. And that could be some of you. And if that is you, can you please appreciate the fact that we set up this Sunday in part with you in mind. We have information for you. We had people to welcome you. There was some coffee and some treats. We had clean restrooms so that you could get to this moment and say, you know what, I think I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back and I'm going to hear more. Because what he's saying seems to be really, really important, I think. Okay, if that's you, then please, God, return. Come back. Come back next Sunday. Come back on a Wednesday. Listen to the Bible being taught. Listen to the Bible being read and sung. Give God, if you would, another go. By the way, I've been serving God for 40 years now. 40 years. Final group. Smallest group of all. Verse 34, unfortunately. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. So, so just a few said, you know what? The time for excuses is all over. It's over. How about you? Are the, is the time for excuses over? You used to say believing in Jesus and following him isn't really that important. But you can't say that today. You used to say that, you know what? The church is filled with silly people wasting their lives. But you can't say that today. It used to be that your pride got in the way, so you couldn't imagine what your friends or your family or colleagues would think of you if you became a Christian and began to serve Jesus Christ in some vigorous, meaningful way. But you can't do that today. And now, having arrived at the place where you're at the very end of all your excuses, you believe. You believe that Christ is risen and he's coming, and now, now you can't wait till he does. Let me just close with this. My father is old enough for me to start thinking about his death a whole lot. He wouldn't appreciate it, but it's my problem. So here, this is how it goes. Laying in bed, thinking about him. Think about past, terrific dad, good man, wise, gracious, giving. They think about my ministry over the past 25 years for good reasons. We've been separated. We haven't lived in the same place over, over, over 25 years now. And then I think, well, he's soon going to be gone. And, and I'm going to miss him. And so I deal with that. But then listen carefully. Listen carefully. I think to myself, you know, I'm going to see him again forever and ever and ever and ever. Why is that the case? There's just one reason. We are both convinced that Jesus Christ is risen. We both repented. We both believed Jesus when he said, if he lives, 
people like me and my dad and hopefully all of you will live with him also. Now you tell me, what else do I have? Tell me a better thing than that. I'm going to end with John Stott. Kind of zips this all up by saying this. Christ claimed he will judge the world. Several of his parables imply that he will come back at the end of the world and that final day of reckoning will be postponed until his return. He will himself raise the dead and all the nations will be gathered before him. He will sit on the throne of his glory and the judgment will be committed to him by the Father. He will then separate men from one another as shepherd separates his sheep from his goats. Some will be invited to come and inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the very foundation of the world. Others will hear the dreadful words, depart from me, you cursed, and to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Those who have acknowledged him before men, he will acknowledge before his father. Those who have denied him, he will deny. Indeed, for a person to be excluded from heaven on that last day, it will be enough for Jesus to say, I never knew you. Now, loved ones, I can say to you with all the love in my heart, please know him. Not your way, but his way. Please know him. Jesus is alive, and he's returning. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow and pray. Father, will you please have your way with the words that were declared and sung this morning? Would you please save the lost? Call in all your wondering children. And please, Father, for Jesus' sake, bless this Easter day greatly. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be given to all who repent and believe. Amen.